I am the Iron Fist. I hold back the storm when nothing else can. Welcome back and welcome to the bonus episode of Me and My Friend Pete, where we dig into the high society long boxes and pull comic stories for the ages from all across the multiverse of comic books universes. This week, we're running with the big if. That's the immortal Iron Fist. Number one, the last Iron Fist story, part one. And if you couldn't tell from the last two Iron Fist stories I covered, I love me some Iron Fist. No spotlights in this one. If you want a rundown of the Iron Fist legendary hand skills, check out the Beyond bonus episode here on me and my friend Pete, where you get not only a spotlight, but an extensive way here section. And with no way here section this week, that's the beauty of a number one issue, we can get right to it after the credits. The writers on this one are two legends, Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction. We've got David Aja and Travel Foreman on pencils, David Aja and Derek Friedolfs on inks. Matt Hollingsworth on colors, Dave Lanfears on letters, and Warren Simons was the editor. The covers for the Immortal Iron Fist series are all stunning. This one is a white negative space with the title, The Immortal Iron Fist, on the upper right corner. Just off center, there's a vertical rectangle running the length of the page, and in it, we see the Tower of Kun Lun, Daniel Rand's childhood home. The tower resembles One World Trade in New York, Mixed with the spires of Saruman's Tower from the Lord of the Rings movies. I promise you that's the most accurate way to describe it, and it is a beautiful image. Snow is falling softly, and there's a soft white glow behind the black sketching of the tower. In the foreground, we get the immortal Iron Fist in the flesh. Daniel Rand. His right hand is extended towards us, his pinky and ring finger curl, his middle and pointer finger straight. His left knee is slightly bent, and his body weight is on that foot. On his legs, he's wearing his Iron Fist green pants with a yellow sash wrapping the waist. Its ribbons fluttering. On his topless pale bare chest is the burned symbol of Shu Lao the Undying. But his upper body is cast in shadow, so the dragon symbol is glowing white. Wrapping his head from the nose up is his goldenrod yellow mask. The ties curling up towards the title. And what you all came to see? I know. He's got his left fist cocked back just above his waist and a yellow-orange glow surrounding it. The man is in the building. The myth is in the building. The fist is in the building. So let's get into it. Page one opens to a rice field in the shadow of a large green covered mountain. This is the Kunlun mountain range. A man in green robes with wide sleeves strolls forward through the throngs of people, all staring in the same direction, his yellow sash blowing in the breeze as he walks. The upper half of his face is hidden beneath the wide bamboo rice hat he's wearing. The caption box reads, The village is insignificant. 300 lives, more or less. Men on horseback in fur hats and fur-lined boots race towards the rice field with swords drawn. The armies of the Khan. The great Genghis Khan. The caption box says no man dares stand in their way. A young man, watching the man in green robes walk through the rice field, says, Father, who, who is that? His words are in brackets, so we know he's not speaking English. Page two opens from the perspective of the Mongols, racing towards the man with swords drawn and flags flying. The man, staring through carefully woven slots in his rice hat, 
raises his left hand in front of his body and bending his right arm at the elbow, places his right hand flat beneath his chin. The caption boxes read, Who am I? I am the Iron Fist. On the bottom of this panel, we get a little exposition. This is Bei Ming Chin, Iron Fist circa 1227 AD. The Khans bear their teeth shouting and waving their swords, racing towards him. He lowers his right hand and closes his left into a fist, pulling it in front of his face. I stand before the unstoppable hordes, and I hold them back. Before his hand begins to glow, surrounding the young man in an orange light. That's what I do, what I've always done. We turn the page and we're not in Kunlun anymore. We're on a rooftop in New York beneath a large water tower. Rain is falling and there are no less than 11 Hydra members in their dark, olive green full body uniforms and red goggles. For those who don't know, Hydra is a terrorist organization in the Marvel Universe whose motto is cut off one head and two more take its place. If you've seen the Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, Captain America, Winter Soldier, my favorite Marvel movie if that matters to anyone, Hydra were the villains in that movie. Their goal is word domination through intimidation and violence and subterfuge and they're usually the de facto bad guy group when Marvel wants a hero to strut their stuff and prove they can fight. Back to Six of the Hydra are holding assault rifles and five of them are shooting, all in the same direction, above their heads at the Iron Fist. But this isn't Bei Ming Qian. This Iron Fist is our guy from the cover and he's in a jump kick in perfect form, flying through the air from stage left, his arms wide, his right foot tight towards his body, his left foot extended, the heel slamming into a Hydra agent's neck. He kicked this man so hard the dude's tongue has poked out of his mouth. It is a gorgeous splash page. And the caps and boxes give us his inner monologue. I am the Iron Fist. I hold back the storm when nothing else can. And we got action. The Iron Fist lands on page four and we get his body moving through the rain. He races past an agent, cracking him across the jaw so fast we don't even get to see. He does a jump straight kick through two panels, connecting with the center of another agent's stomach, before grabbing the next agent and locking the villain's head in the crook of his right elbow, while at the same time slamming his left elbow into the sternum of the next agent, his mouth wide as he yells with focused energy. The whole time he's kicking ass, his thoughts are elsewhere. He thinks that he shouldn't have been the Iron Fist, his father should have, that it was his legacy. But his father returned to the world to build a business, an empire this Iron Fist now runs, and to start a family. The Iron Fist thinks this is the world his father chose, and now he's what his father would have been if he didn't get blown off of his path. We're in the Kun Moon Mountains next. A line of five geared up hikers tethered together by a rope ascend the mountain as a snowstorm swirls around them. The Iron Fist thinks he can still feel the frost thinks he can still hear his mother scream as she falls. And we see the shadow of a climber falling back first from a cliff. And the hits just keep on coming for this Iron Fist as a pack of wolves pursue his party in the next panel before abandoning the party and feasting on his mother's still warm body. It is a roofless panel of dark fur, bloody fangs, and mean eyes. A woman falls to her death in the snow-capped Kunlun Mountains and is devoured by wolves. Another woman in another refrigerator. The next panel, we see the survivors of the party have reached the ancient gates of Kunlun, its tower rising high above the city gates in the snowfall. The Iron Fist thinks, She saved my life, even though she didn't believe your stories. She thought you had gotten us all killed, but she was wrong. And we're back on the rooftop, in the pouring rain. The Iron Fist standing in a ready pose for combat. Stage right, unconscious Hydra agents at his feet. Six Hydra agents with assault rifles raised stage left, their red lensed eyes glowing in the darkness. Beneath this, we get Daniel Rand, Iron Fist, circa 2006 AD. 
and Iron Fist springs into action to open five. Literally, he leaps towards the Hydra agents as they all start spraying. In a perfect split in the air, he kicks the Hydra agent so hard with his left foot that the dude spins around faster than the blood leaves his mouth, while the Iron Fist's right foot connects with the face of an agent behind him. Before he lands, he grabs the Hydra agent by the face with both hands and snaps his neck. While bracing his right foot on the agent in front of him and kicking the living shit out of him with his left foot, snapping his head back. The Iron Fist is working right now, and Hydra knows it. An agent steps forward, screaming through the downpour. He's just one man, damn it! We are Legion! We are Hydra! And bodies just keep dropping around the loudmouth as he grips his rifle. The greatest fighter on Earth, Crouch Slow replies, Yeah, yeah, Hydra is Legion, before lighting his namesake up. It pulses orange in the rain as he asks, But when was the last time you faced a dragon? He answers his own question to open page six. For me, it seems almost a lifetime ago. He's younger now and bald, his arms wide above his head, his chest bare. He's wearing black martial arts pants and a red sash around his waist. And he's screaming at a giant red scaly dragon with fire in its eyes and smoke steaming from its open maw. The young man leaps towards the symbol on the dragon's chest the symbol of Shu Lao, the Undying. He thinks he was the champion of Kung Lun, and this was his destiny. He grabs the dragon, pressing his chest against the symbol, screaming as red energy swirls between the two beings. Seizing the dragon's power was his destiny, like it was his father's before him. The symbol of Shu Lao now burned into his chest. He digs both hands into the molten heart of the dragon. Why? To change them into things like unto iron. And he opens page seven by obliterating the remaining horde on the rooftop with a vicious iron-fisted right punch. His fist still aglow, he asks if that's all Hydra has because he was just getting warmed up. What's that old saying about Hydra? Cut off one head, two more take its place? Well, Danny's killed at least 10 in seven pages, so he was a fool to think things were done. He turns around just in time to be tackled off the roof by no less than four Hydra agents. It is a beautiful long vertical panel. In the background, behind their shadows hurtling to earth, is a white building with Danny's last name on the roof and goldenrod letters. Ran. As he thinks that he was careless and impatient. The same careless and impatient boy his father left behind. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity page. page. Page 8. Just in time to see Danny sitting at the head of a boardroom in Rand Industries. His right hand to his chin, the pointer finger beneath his nose as he's deep in thought. He wears his blonde hair short, a blue blazer and a tie with green and yellow stripes denoting who he really is. He thinks that Jaren thought he was careless and impatient earlier today. And Jaren is standing up next to him, his brown hair graying, his suit charcoal gray, square rimmed glasses, his tie black, orange and yellow. He has his right hand in his pocket and he's smiling as he holds a remote with his left with a smile on his face as three monitors turn on in the background. The monitors on the ends show the first car of a bullet train. The monitor in the middle shows a map of Hong Kong. And Jaren says, like a toy train set, isn't it? She's 2,500 kilometers of Ram Track Type 2 Howback Array Line stretching from Beijing to Hong Kong and back. 10 Rand Rapid Trains capable of speeds of over 580 kilometers per hour. And at reception of funding, all appropriate tech transfers to China National Maglev Transportation Technology Research Center. That is a mouthful. The man at the end of the table, flanked by three burly men in dark horn rimmed glasses, is the only member of his group sitting. He's an Asian man. He's wearing a brown suit and orange tie. He's keeping it simple. With his fingers interlocked, he says he's prepared $10.6 billion to get the deal done 
immediately. And Jaron pulls a contract from who knows where, saying let's get some autographs, smiling. But Danny says, wait. He says, we're building the trains and just handing the tech over to China? No, no deal. Danny protecting his proprietary technology, whatever that means. Jaron is shocked to open page nine and Danny gets preachy. He says, no Jaron, I don't care. It's China, Tibet, Falun Gong, you know, Tiananmen and the, uh, that tank guy. Danny knows his history. Tibet has had a debate over its sovereignty with China since 1950, and it's a topic of much contention between the two parties. China maintains that Tibet is a part of its country. The Tibet government in exile doesn't agree. China has flexed its muscle in any and all avenues where Tibet, being treated as a country, has taken place. Even in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Ancient One, Doctor Strange's tutor, mentor, and dare I say friend, is from Tibet in the comic books. But China, refusing to release the movie in China if this remained, forced Marvel's hand, removing any mention of the Ancient One's Tibetan heritage. The whitewashing of the character into a bald white woman was all Marvel. Can't blame China for that. Falun Gong is a religious practice that began in China in the early 1990s that grew to include 70 million people. The Chinese government, fearing its size, began a propaganda assault in state-run media before initiating a full-scale crackdown in 1999, declaring it a heretical organization that threatened social stability. China's been accused of imprisoning hundreds of thousands of Falun Gong practitioners without trial and subjecting them to forced labor, psychiatric abuses, torture, and organ harvesting, with estimates as low as 2,000 to over 1 million 500,000 people believed to have been murdered in state custody. The Tiananmen Square incident was five people setting themselves on fire on the eve of the Chinese New Year in January of 2001. The five people were thought to be Falun Gong practitioners at first, and these acts were used by the government as proof that Falun Gong was dangerous, causing public support to turn from the practice. However, Independent researchers doing their own digging and the refusal of China to allow foreign journalists to interview the self-immolators caused many to believe the event was staged by the Chinese government to turn public sentiment away from Falun Gong, as many Chinese citizens believed the group was being overly persecuted by the Chinese government at the time. The tank man was an unknown Chinese man who armed only with a plastic bag continually blocked the path of a column of Chinese tanks on June 5, 1989 a day after troops with assault rifles and backed by tanks opened fire on protesters in Tiananmen Square. The death toll varies from several hundred to several thousand, with thousands more wounded, according to estimates. One day later, the tank man stepped out into the path of four tanks and refused to move. When the column tried to drive around him, he cut them off again. He did this multiple times. The image of the man armed only with a black plastic bag staring down the four tanks has become one of the greatest examples of David versus Goliath of all time and it is recognizable worldwide. Nobody knows for certain who the tank man is and I don't know or pretend to be an expert on Chinese politics but me being who I am, I have a tendency to side with the people not armed with the tanks and the rockets and the assault rifles, just the strength of their convictions and what they believe is right. This makes me think of the monologue from the movie Captain America, Civil War. Compromise where you can, but where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say, no, you move. That's a movie with people playing at being heroes. 
This man had no eyes to stare into, only cold steel lined with cannons that could crush him or blow him to smithereens, and he still said, no, you move. Channeling that human torch spirit, real world heroes don't wear capes. Some of them just carry plastic bags, back too. The man on the opposite end of the table says, it's a wealthy man who doesn't care about $10.6 billion, Mr. Rand. And Danny replies, I'm not so poor that I don't care about China's human rights record. Like, even if I didn't have this money, I would still do my best not to be an asshole. Asshole? The man still smiling says his company, Wago Industries, doesn't have any power in national policy. Jaren says Danny's name sternly with wide eyes. And Danny says, no deal. Some point, whatever billion dollars be damned, we're done here. Despite raising his eyes to lambast China, Danny hasn't changed his position for this whole page. It is a beautiful bit of visual storytelling. The man stands and heads towards the door. Looking over his shoulder, he says not to worry. He's sure to find some way to spend $10.6 billion before adding that Danny has a nice office and he hopes to own one like it himself one day. Corporate threats. And Danny, loosening his tie to open page 10, wonders if that was a threat before Jaren smacks him in the back of the head with a loud thwack. Danny says, I know you're frustrated, but those were bad guys and remember who signs your checks. And Jaren's got his own integrity. He says Danny can sue him, he can fire him, Jaren doesn't care because Danny just wasted three and a half years of the man's life. He asks Danny why he did it. For a midlife crisis? Because Danny woke up closer to Bill Gates than Bono? Danny grabs Jaren's arm saying that's not it at all. But Jaren grabs his briefcase and tells Danny to save it. He says Danny just risked everything on a hunch. So he better let Jaren fix it or Jaren's gonna quit. And Danny's not gonna let him fix anything. He gets suited and booted and with the rain falling behind him, Iron Fist, perched on the sill of a window, is breaking into a Weigal security building on a hunch. Eleven opens to Iron Fist moving through Wago Industries offices and realizing the offices are a front like the building across the street in the movie Boiler Room. Everything from floor to ceiling is unused. He opens a filing cabinet and finds a tag for the filing cabinet still in it. When he closes the drawer and looks up, the answer appears all around me. The hordes of Hydra didn't think of that. And the Iron Fist is surrounded by the infinity headed dragon. 12 opens to a calm scene outside of the Wago Industries building as rain falls down from the heavens. Before the Iron Fist crashes through the window of the building, his hands covering his head and face as bullets follow him out of the window frame. And his monologue continues. So here we are, a Hydra Legion chasing me across the rooftops of Manhattan while a Hydra Front Corporation is making moves against Rancor. My enemy attacks from both sides. In the final panel, He's landed on a roof, his back on the edge of the ledge as he sweeps his right foot, sending a Hydra agent falling over the side, another falling onto his neck, and connects with a third's forearm, forcing the bullets from his rifle to shoot towards the heavens. On 13, Iron Fist wonders if looking before he leaps is something he's learned from his father, as three Hydra agents line up and strike a pose like Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. They are dying left and right on these rooftops and still have time to strike fancy poses. They're like the Ginyu Force. The agent in the front screams, Iron Fist, as you refuse to kneel before Hydra's might, you shall now face your very doom. Before a giant metallic spider looking vehicle lumbers forward on spindly legs with scythe for feet. The Hydra agent waves his hand at it, screaming, Mecha Gorgon. Iron Fist stands in the shadow of this Infinity Lake Goliath, thinking when his father died, he, Danny, was reborn. He ducks beneath the scythe thinking since then, He's been to all the corners of the world. He's gained partners, and we get an old school image of Luke Cage in his Power Man outfit, Fro, Moon Tiara, and all. Iron Fist thinks friends, and we see Colleen Wing, one of the most dangerous people to wield a sword on Earth. 
Iron Fist thinks even lovers. And we see Misty, fashion on best ever night, looking like Regina King with an afro in all her gorgeous glory. Three beautiful panels, back to back. And we cut back to the Iron Fist as he dodges a scythe with his upper body, but isn't quick enough to stop the blade from cutting into his left thigh. Iron Fist lights it up and punches through the leg. No problem, but he's not out of the woods yet. Another scythe cuts through the Iron Fist shirt, turning his extended V-neck into tatters. A second scythe swings as he tries to dodge and connects with the right side of his torso, drawing blood. Two more connect across his back, and now blood's raining from the Iron Fist. The whole time, he thinks that his friends have a life he can never know because he inherited his father's burden. He thinks this is his life's work, and it's his great sacrifice. He thinks he chose the path his father turned away from. Down on his forearm on the roof, the rain mixing with the blood running down his exposed back, the Mechagorgon advancing towards him with glowing red eyes, Iron Fist thinks that he often understands why his dad turned from the path. It has to be a lot standing against the hordes. As the Mechagorgon bears down on Iron Fist on page 15, he thinks, Because sometimes, Father, as you know so well, no matter how dutiful we are to our sacrifice, no matter how hard we try, no matter how high we climb, we can fall. Before the Mechagorgon draws more blood and the Iron Fist falls from the roof of the building face down. 16 opens to Bangkok, Thailand at sunset. A white man with a pockmarked face and a green polo shirt walks towards the exit of a tent as an Asian man with horribly cratered skin asks if he'll see the man tomorrow. The white man replies at least once, he's sure, before stepping out into the dusk. A young Asian woman with long black hair and a black chung sum with pink trim and sequin, a large teardrop shaped hole exposing her cleavage and a gold clasp at the collar. Gorgeous dress, I know. Ask the crater face man if that's him. Crater face says that this is the man and despite being steadier than their other customers, he won't put up a fight because he's still on the pipe. So this is an opium den and the white man leaving is high out of his mind. The young woman exits the den and now she's speaking with a man in shadow. She's telling the man that this one is the one he seeks. The man in shadow asks if she saw him. She says no, but the opium man, the man steps out of the shadow to open 17, revealing a young, serious face with a thin scar running across his left eye from forehead to cheek. He's Asian as well, and he grabs the young woman around the jaws, causing her to grimace, saying they don't take the words of drug dealers. She screams for him to stop before turning from him and telling him they'll confirm it themselves. The man says that's exactly what you'll do. He watches her leave a moment, and we see what he's wearing, a charcoal gray suit and black dress shirt. We see the head of a tattooed dragon poking out of his open collar before he clutches the sides of his head as the world goes green and swirls around him. A voice in his head says, Davos, hear me. And Davos screams for the voice to stop clutching the sides of his skull. He says he's done what the voice asked. And in the final panel, we see a purple liquid in an ornate golden bowl with lit candles flanking it on both sides. A voice from off panel says, they'll be the judge of that. They ask if this is really the one. Davos replies that he'll know soon, but he believes it is. On 18, he's still clutching his head saying his father's journal didn't lie. The voice replies, you should pray it did not. We brought you back for a reason, Davos. Davos demands more time, saying the man is nearly in his grasp. And we see the man laying on the floor of his apartment beneath a window. His right arm beneath his head, the right side of his face in shadow. His left eye wide open. The woman in the gorgeous Chung Sung says, Mister, my sister and I have come as desired. As a young woman in a purple Chung Sung knocks on the door across from her. The man climbs to his feet. Intoxication bubbles dancing around his head. 
as he shuffles towards the door. The knocking continues as the woman says they were told room 12 from the other side of the door. The man wonders, what the hell? Out loud before opening the door saying, I'm sorry girls, you really got the wrong. But he has to leap back immediately as Purple Chung Sum swings a full length sword at him, tearing his shirt open. While Black Chung Sum raises the sword above her head to strike, the guy screams, ah, then gets busy. A left punch shatters the sword. A swipe across his body with another left cuts the second blade in half. Both women stare at him saying, it is he, together. His eyes suddenly focused. He raises both fists in front of his face and asks the women who they are. Purple Chung Sum replies, one who will have your heart. Before both women disappear from their dresses to open page 20, leaving two beautiful white swans in a clothes pile in their place. The man utters no, raises a left hand, but both swans fly out of his open window into the evening sky. The man's shirt, now cut open, we see on his chest, slightly gone to see, the symbol of Shu Lao the Undying, burned there at the center. He says, this isn't supposed to be my life anymore. It was supposed to be over. And beside his head, it reads, Orson Randall, Iron Fist, circa 1915, last seen, 1933. And we're out. I love the art throughout this series. I love the storytelling throughout this series. This is a noir tale in the greatest sense of the word. Every panel feels alive and like it's moving. If you can pick up this issue, hell, this entire run in trade, do yourself the favor. The art and the writing and the pencils and the colors is worth it so much. I know I say it every time I do an Iron Fist story, but this really is a seminal run. And I'm really excited for what's coming for the new Iron Fist to be released soon by Marvel Comics. And if you're a fan of Daniel Rand like I am, check out Devil's Reign number two. He's got a fight scene in it that'll knock your socks off. All that said, all that said, thank you so much for being a patron. Thank you so much more for listening. It's because of you I get to do this and I never take that for granted. Especially during issues like this that remind me why I love comics so much. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, it's no, you move. And with great power, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here. <laughs>